You're listening to Down the Middle, a political podcast. Now, back to some intermittent, moderate change. Hello, listeners, and welcome to our interview-only segment of Down the Middle. This week, our interview is with author Emily Conrad and is based around our topic of the day, the Electoral College, and Emily's first book, The Faithless, The Untold Story of the Electoral College. Emily Conrad attended Wolford College in her hometown of Spartanburg, South Carolina, where she graduated summa cum laude with a triple major in economics, German, and Spanish, and the distinction of Phi Beta Kappa. She completed a Master of Law in China Studies with a focus in international relations at Peking University in Beijing, China, where she was a Yanqing Academy Fellow. The Faithless, The Untold Story of the Electoral College is Emily's first book. So sit back, relax, and enjoy what was easily one of our favorite interviews to date, our interview with Emily Conrad. All right. Please welcome author of The Faithless, The Untold Story of the Electoral College, Emily Conrad. Emily, welcome to the show. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. You put a question mark in your title. I did, and that was intentional. Did I did I do it right? I think you did. I think you did the question mark pretty well. Okay, excellent. <laughs> I, but I, you know, it depends. You know, some people ask questions very passionately. Some people ask them kind of, you know, more passively. So. Sure. I was. I, I've been. I've been nervous about it all week, so I just wanted to make sure it passed board. <laughs> it did. So, uh, tell us how you first became interested in politics, and if you're willing, which side of the aisle you currently sit on. So I am kind of slightly removed from American politics because I've been based in Asia for the last five years. So right now, right now I'm in South Carolina, which is where I uh, grew up and it's where I went to college. Um, but I did my master's degree over in China. And um, then I started working as a journalist over there. I got married. And um, unfortunately, with COVID, my, my life just kind of took on new and interesting turns, uh, not going to necessarily complain, but it did. So it, for me, it was really interesting to be able to witness what was happening in the 2016 election from across an ocean. Um, at the same time, feeling very connected to what, what was happening and feeling like I understood kind of some of the, the things that were happening. I you know, grew up in South Carolina, come from a more conservative background, uh, especially in, in regards to my family members. So I kind of saw this rise of Trump, um, you know, from across the ocean. And then everybody that I was going to school with and all most of my um, American friends and, you know, abroad, you, you kind of get one sort of circle of, of American friends. They, they, you know, were definitely leaning towards another way. So it was very interesting for me to watch it and also to be able to think about politics, but in a way, because I was in China, that I wasn't getting bombarded every single day by a news media's um, kind of, uh, I don't want to say their, their agenda, but I, I was kind of getting the headlines. And if I was interested in the headlines, I could dig deeper, but I was separated out from that. So for me, that was extremely interesting. Um, and so, um, that, that, so as I approached my book, that was definitely what I was wanting to take was kind of a more bipartisan approach. Um, because I was seeing both sides play out kind of on my social media screens. And so um, in regard to my own uh, political beliefs, I, I try to stay more moderate. 
um, down the middle, I suppose. Yeah. Um, so, so this is a great place to, to share um, my research and, and what I've done. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Yeah. C- can you explain to our listeners what a faithless elector is and how often or not they have popped up in our elections? I'd be happy to. And um, so faithless electors, normally they get brought up every four years because people start to worry, oh my gosh, a faithless elector can actually happen. Um, but the reality is, is that it doesn't happen that frequently. So a lot of the, so a lot of the talk about faithless electors is hype. But 2016 was actually different, and that is what got me so interested in this topic. Uh, a faithless elector is an elector of the Electoral College who does not vote for the winner of their state's popular vote. Um, so they can vote for another Republican. If they're a Republican elector, they can vote for a Democrat. They can vote for whoever they so choose. That person doesn't even need to be uh, affiliated on a, a, with a particular party and doesn't even need to have run for president. Um, So you see these faithless electors, and in 2016, we saw the most faithless electors that we had in modern presidential history. And there were both Democrats and Republicans. And, you know, I was sitting over across the ocean, and I began to think, this is really interesting. What is happening in America where you would see these electors, and supposedly these would be kind of party faithful or party elite, at least people who would have a lot to lose by going against what their party would say. And I thought to myself, what is, um, what's happening in, in America where you're seeing so many people on both sides of the aisle say, hey, I don't agree with, your, uh, with my party's chosen one. So that, that was kind of what drew me to the subject and why I started to dig in and research this topic. It's a really interesting thing because I don't think people are even aware that that's a thing that happens. No. Uh, I think we could we could sort of predict where the uh, you know that the Democrats would do something like that in 2016. But when you say Republicans were doing it as well, do you have any? Could you give us uh, you know any clue as to who they they were choosing these electors the these these <laughs> these Republican electors who were so yeah. um yes I'd be happy to share. So in in my book I interview I include interviews with with eight faithless electors and both Republicans and Democrats. So I interviewed three Republicans. Interestingly, two decided to step down rather than vote faithlessly. And I thought that was extremely interesting. These were people who publicly said I was that they were going to vote faithlessly, got lobbied, got the death threats from everybody. And then they said, hey, um, OK, I, I signed up for more than what I thought. So I'll step right, down. Right. And they did that after outside pressure. One of them was a very strong. Um, he was a homeschool father, a Hispanic homeschool father from uh, Texas. Uh, six children. Uh, he started and he was very strong in the liberty movement, so a strong Ron Pauler. And uh, he was also involved in creating a pro-life organization, and he, and he still dedicates quite a bit of his time to that. So that, that gives a sense um, of kind of a division in the, in the Republican Party that might not have been addressed, this, this ongoing liberty movement. And then another one who stepped down was uh, from Georgia, and his name is Valky Vu. And he was a a refugee, a former refugee from South Vietnam, a businessman, very, you know, very much involved in uh, Republican politics since, you know, he was in his college days. And he thought to himself, well, Trump doesn't represent the Republican Party. So um, so you really saw these two sides. And then there were two other faithless electors, of course, but you really see the two sides kind of 
the Ron Paulers, and then also, on the other hand, the Never Trumpers. It's funny, because the, the Ron Paulers have sort of come around to Trump. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, mostly it, out of know. fear, I think. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, just out of curiosity, how many electors are there? There are 538 electors. And um, the way that you come about that number is basically it's the same. The amount of electors that your state has is based off of your representation in Congress. So you add up the number of uh, representatives your, your your state has in the House of Representatives plus two. So it has the same level of representation as uh, Congress. Which is why the census is so important, which, uh, Rob, I went into in our Buzz History this week. Obviously, the number of representatives you have in the House is based on population of your state. And the number of electors you have is based on, you know, how many representatives you have in the House. So it, the census becomes very important. I don't think many people recognize that or understand that. Very interesting. So what did you learn from your deep dive into these people's lives? Was there a common thread? And I'm also interested in how difficult it was to get in touch with them. Well, I, I started this kind of maybe a year or two after, um, after the election. So by then, a lot of the buzz around faithless electors had died down. And so I think that that helped my ability to get in touch with them. Um, millennial that I am, I kind of just stalked them on Facebook. I know that that... <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to I don't want to make it seem like I'm some sort of stalker but I just kind of reached out to them and or We're I would call find... it driven you're very driven and I... <laughs> <laughs> I um and so I'd reach out and I would say I'm really interested in hearing your story and um if you would be willing to share it with me I would love to just talk to you and I said I, I didn't know if it would be an article or if it could turn into something more and so I, I would start to reach out and we would kind of develop a relationship. Some of them, I think, were initially skeptical, but um, my book was the, the product of uh, interviews time and time again. So sometimes I would interview somebody for five times and um, sometimes it was maybe two or three, but really getting a sense of what caused them to do something so drastic. And that's really what I was interested in. Um, and really what, what I found so interesting is that even though these people had similarities, and in many cases they had very opposing political views, uh, they still did something so similar. And so there's, there's an interesting thread, but the thread isn't how they got there. The, the thread is what they, they did. And um, I would venture to say all of them at some point felt a level of alienation with their, their political party. Um, but their their alienation wasn't the same. And so that that's kind of what what's so interesting um, is exploring how they became active in politics and uh, what led to that alienation where they would say, hey, I'm not going to vote for, for this guy or this or this in, in the case of 2016 for this girl. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's really an incredible thing. I mean, taking into consideration the genesis of the electoral college, do you believe that it is a ne it is it's necessary? And if not, do you have any thoughts on a viable solution? Unfortunately, I do not feel like I have any thoughts on a viable solution, and um, and so that is um, so that's something that I I stress a lot, and um, because a lot of people ask me, and and when people hear that I've written a book about the electoral college. Their first question is, are you for it or are you against it? And I think that that is just maybe the worst debate or the worst discussion that we could be having about the Electoral College at this point. Because you take a look at what we have and how it functions, not what it was supposed to be, not how it was supposed to, to be today. 
or what was in the past. If you look at what we have, there are gaping, what I consider to be holes in the system, and we're not talking about it and we're not addressing it. And um, so that, that's kind of, I encourage people to think, and I hope that my book does that, to think about the issues associated with the Electoral College, the challenges that we will likely be presented with um, coming up here in the future. So um, we can delve into those. I, you know, I, I, can, I could get on a tangent for you guys if you'd like. <laughs> it's, it's fascinating to me because in doing the research on, 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 the, on the EC for this, uh, for this podcast episode that we're doing, which is um, the topic of the day this week was centered around the Electoral College, um, I realized that this has been a controversial thing. I didn't know it was controversial since the 50s. And in the 60s, it actually came close yeah, only to time. being abolished, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, which I think a lot of people don't know. I think, uh, from my perspective, I thought that the uh, that uh, the opposition to it was a fairly new phenomenon. So, yeah, I was surprised by that. I believe it's the most discussed in Congress change to the Constitution that ever existed. Yeah, there you go. Well, I mean, the the um, the criticisms of the Electoral College started just right when it was started, actually. Um, you already start to see, even in the early 19th century, major problems that arose with the Electoral College. Um, you know, I often, you know, and I and I have a chapter about this in my book, you have 1824, where you have no presidential candidate win a majority of electoral college votes. You have only uh, Andrew Jackson win a plurality of the electoral college votes. Then it goes into a contingency election in the House of Representatives. And in a contingency election, every state gets one single vote. Well, in the midst of that, you have John Quincy Adams, who did not receive a plurality of the popular vote where it was counted or a plurality of the electoral college vote. And because of, uh, you know, what some people say is very uh, crafty political maneuvering, was able to get the presidency. Um, so Andrew Jackson really didn't like the Electoral College after yeah, that. <laughs> um, and, and so what you start to, as you look at the Electoral College, you realize um, the system that we have, it was really a system that was developed on compromises from the very beginning. And um, we, we just kind of talk about getting rid of it or keeping it, which is not a compromise. And I think that the, the dialogue really has to start to be to understanding what we have and then trying to develop a solution that will work for both sides of the political aisle. It sounds like Emily's talking about incremental, moderate change, Riz. Yeah, yeah that's, that's our motto on this show. When we want uh, moderate change, when do we want it incrementally? So, <laughs> and and you see that with the you know the the sort of that's what's happened with the electoral college. There's been those three amendments that have sort of helped it evolve, um, and so you believe obviously that that is what we need to continue to focus on an evolution of the EC rather than a, a, a black or white view of the issue. Well, and and you know the, the electoral college is evolving whether we're paying attention to it or not. And that's what a lot of people don't realize. Um, it's constantly evolving because of state uh, laws or election codes that are implemented. And then you also saw the Supreme Court uh, cases that came out um, and the decisions that were made in July. And I was those literally were... just about to ask you about that. With <laughs> yeah. you, you're talking about uh, Chiafalo versus uh, V. Washington. Yes, and yeah. Colorado versus Baca. And yeah. I have interviews with both Brett and Michael, wow. so the two namesakes of those cases in my yeah. book. Um, and it was really interesting interviewing them because I was interviewing them before we knew the outcome of the cases. So that was really kind wow. of interesting, the, the enthusiasm for what these cases would bring about. 
Um, so what was decided was that state laws to bind electors are not unconstitutional, um, which is really a way of just making the Electoral College more confusing than it was even before, <laughs> right, in my yeah. view, because you yeah. have some states that have binding elector laws, mm -hmm, some mm -hmm. states that have no binding elector laws. Among the states that have binding elector laws, some just have fines. Yeah. But the vote so, and counts. some do like a half and half thing, right? I, and then some do, and then some, you know, remove the elector, and so it makes it even. And in my home state of South Carolina, it's uh, the faithless vote stands, but you'll get, you know, hit with criminal charges after your faithless vote. Right. Wow. So <laughs> you know, so it's it's what it did was that it made the electoral college even more difficult for a layperson to understand. And even more difficult for researchers or people interested in the topic to say, this is how it works, or this is how it doesn't work. Um, so I, I think that the Electoral College is constantly changing. If more states start to implement binding elector laws, um, you know, I think that most people won't even know that that's happening. And a lot right. of the debates around the Electoral College, you know, is, should it be, should it not be? Well, hey, I mean, it's already changing or it already changed yeah, sure. on you. So yeah. how do you think that the rulings from this past summer um, could potentially affect this current election and what's going on right now? Well, I think that, first of all, it does ensure that 14 states, uh, or at least the electors of 14 states, uh, can be removed uh, in a faithless vote. Um, the, there are 14 states that can actually remove a faithless elector after a faithless vote. And so that is constitutional and that can't be argued at this point in time. Well, I suppose a, a very smart person could argue it, but it's un very <laughs> unlikely. <laughs> right. Um, so, so that is the that is the first thing that's the first impact. But looking ahead to future elections, and this was one of this is the biggest argument um, that people are having about binding electors laws to start with, is that if you bind an elector to the state's popular vote, um, what it what keeps the elector from being bound to the national popular vote? So a lot of uh, people on the liberal side of things, you know, really touted this as a victory. Oh, binding electors to state popular vote is just one step to binding them to the national popular vote. Um, where, of course, you know, one of the reasons why the Electoral College is, is so problematic is because um, or, or it has this level is because it has a winner take all system. Um, you know, it's and, you know, people are talking about keeping or getting rid of the Electoral College instead of talking about binding elector laws or um, or changing uh, elector distribution to the way that Maine or Nebraska does that based off of congressional districts. Sure. So obviously you have a deeper understanding of what these electors are facing after each state certifies its vote. So w what are your thoughts on the status of, of the current election and what can you tell our listeners about the process and your faith or lack thereof in it? This is where it gets extremely complicated. And, uh, you know, I remember when The Atlantic in September came out with this article talking about, uh, I guess it was the safe harbor deadline and certifying the, the election um, mm -hmm. and the electors, you know, just days before um, December 14th, which is our actual election day when we'll know the president-elect. So December 14th, you know, when we voted in, in, you know, a couple weeks ago, um, basically what we were doing is that we were voting for electors who would then vote for the president on our behalf. We actually were not voting for president. Uh, most people, they, they forget that in, in somewhere in the process. Um, so the president will actually be elected um, or become the president-elect on December 14th. 
a few days before then you have the safe harbor deadline. And I remember when the Atlantic first said, oh, the Trump uh, administration or the Trump campaign might be trying to mess around with the safe harbor deadline and say that these uh, that these election results are are faulty or, or bring some sort of that sort of thing. And I remember I at the time I actually reached out because I got a lot of great blurbs from my book from these experts. And so I was I started reaching out to them and I said, what's the likelihood of this happening? And they're like, oh, there's no likelihood that this is going to happen. And <laughs> right. that was just <laughs> yeah, and that was it's, just it's like so two funny. months ago. Yeah, it ju just uh, two hours ago, Van <laughs> yeah. Jones was talking about this on CNN, and somebody was saying there's no way that's going to happen. But well, yeah, well, basically, and this is where it gets actually very where it gets kind of technical, and it depends, and it's based, of course, off of what the Constitution says, but it's also based off of what the state election codes say. Um, so it kind of depends off of what an individual state's election code says, which is why everybody says, oh, it will never happen, because they assume that the election code of the state will prevent it from happening. That may or may not actually be the case that we're discovering. Um, but, but whenever the Electoral College was initially, you know, ideated in the framers' minds, um, at that point in time, you didn't have, you know, even the electors selected by popular vote. They're selected by popular vote in a couple of the states and in a couple of the states who were handpicked by the governor themselves. And then in other states, they were picked by the legislature. And that continued well into the uh, into the 19th century, with a lot of electors being selected by state legislatures uh, directly without any sort of popular vote um, involved in that process. So basically, if it's all like, oh, the state legislatures certify the electors, well, there is a little bit of legal, uh, you know, leeway in that. Um, so it's starting the Electoral College. People are starting to realize that there are holes in the system that are right. not should it be or shouldn't it be? Um, because yeah. if people if people put in all their time and effort into saying abolish the Electoral College, what they're not fixing are the holes that might already be inside the Electoral College vote. Yeah, it's so it's it's very interesting to see what's happening. Um, yeah, I mean, I feel like because of the emotions surrounding the just the issue of Donald Trump as as a president, as a, as a personality, as a man, you know, um, if if the will of the people wasn't enacted, like if there were enough faith, faithless electors or the legislators were were doing what you just described, there would be such an uprising in this country. I couldn't even imagine what it would be like, you know. Um, so that's kind of scary. Well, I mean, that, you know, that that's where it gets interesting. And this is why we really have to talk about what the Electoral College is um, and, and how it operates. Because in many states, a faithless elector is completely legal. And it is not something that, you know, the, the term faithless elector automatically assumes a negative connotation. But in many of these states, well, if it's completely legal, what necessarily makes it ethically concerning and so right. this is where a lot of and what i think is so interesting and um when i really talked with the electors none of the, uh, the faithless electors i interviewed none of them went into their decision lightly right. none of them just woke up one day and like hey i'm gonna just vote for whoever i want to um they all understood their rights and responsibilities and they and their obligations they just had a different way that they interpreted that yeah 
Now, I'm sort of a cynical guy, so this is sort of a cynical question, but um, have you ever in- encountered or heard of a, a faithless elector who was bribed into making their decisions via by money or harassment or whatever? And th- th- that's one of the reasons why I wanted to, to actually interview them to start with. I was one. I was wondering about that myself. I mean, like you took a look at the 20s, all of the news around the surrounding the 2016 election. It was all about Russian interference, collusion. And, you know, here I am living over in China. I'm like, well, there are 538 votes to matter at the end of the day. It's very easy to target 538 people. Uh, you know, easy. this is yeah. just me yeah. thinking uh, of this. Absolutely. Yeah, that's um, yeah. But I will say that out of the, the electors that I interviewed, I can say all of them came to that conclusion without outside interference. Yeah, um, I wonder historically, though, I mean, outside historically, the Historically, that's where it gets extremely interesting. I mean, every single election cycle, you have electors that are lobbied, that are I'm sent sure. death threats. Yeah. You have all of these things. And a lot of these you guys are them. just... Yeah. A lot of yeah, if I could find them on Facebook, you know, like <laughs> yeah, Putin can certainly find them. That's yeah. For sure. yeah, I mean, you know, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, so this uh, this last question is sort of off the topic, but you know, you're an accomplished academic yourself. You have an emphasis in uh, economics and international law and relations. So, where do you see us headed as a country, both domestically and on the world stage? Wow, that is a big topic question. I know, it's, it's uh, big, Not related know. to the electoral college yeah. at all. <laughs> I know. Um, to be honest, um, with coronavirus, I um, have gotten just ever, a lot of my opinions about the future of uh, international politics have changed in the midst of this. Um, and it's been a kind of a personal thing because um, in the midst of this, I actually uh, got separated from my husband. We haven't seen each other for what ten months, so it's the and and it's been extremely interesting to see how different countries have uh, have dealt with this. And um, for me, you know, it's it's made me. I, I lived in China for a long time. Um, it made me a little bit more skeptical of what that is, um, and and a lot of that. Um, at the same time, you start to see China really, you know, showing a lot of muscle at the same time. So, you know, I, it's been a, it's been a kind of an, um, you know, it hits home um, for me. But at the same time, as I think ahead to the future, it's, I don't want to go into like, because I used to be like, oh, those people are like war hawks and like Cold War mentality. But like you get separated from your husband and from your family, it's like, hey, you know, like yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> you start to get that mentality a little bit more. And I will say, moving moving forward, I think that the values that America represents need to be continue to be put forth on the world stage, um, and the transparency that America represents. And we don't get this right in in some all the time in America, but we get it right more than other countries. Yes, I always say the same thing. Oh, you know, I mean, Mm -hmm. we we can argue, we can complain about our media constantly, and I can berate our media for putting forth these agendas, but our media more or less is free. Yeah, Um, and and, and and at least you get to do that. 
Yeah, exactly. And even corruption scales, even with uh, compared to Western countries, we are very, very far down on the corruption yeah. scale compared to a lot of the European countries and and of course the uh, um, you know countries in Asia as well. So um, yeah, people should think about that. So so this time whole <laughs> COVID has made me more appreciative of American right. values than I ever was before, um, and it also makes me um, even more. Um, even more adamant that we need to continue to preserve these values both domestically and put forward these values in our uh, international agenda. So I hope that answers your question. I, I got a little bit, I was like, you know, oh, how should I answer this without yeah, like know, going too deep? Just, but just I hope I did it good enough. <laughs> Yeah, no, absolutely. Just because of your background, we were interested. But, you know, I I think what's going to be really interesting is how the China question is 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 thought of moving forward, because if indeed, you know, I assume that with this whole virus, we're going to eventually find more of the answers of how things started, what went wrong, what was covered up. And we know that the Chinese government has, uh, you know, is was complicit in in this virus spreading around the world. I think it's going to be really interesting to see how other countries communicate with China, how they deal with China going forward. We'll see what happens. I mean, it's sort of above my pay grade, but but I'd love to uh, to uh, you know have someone back and and discuss this for for sure in the future. Yeah. Yeah, so it's going to be a main a major issue going forward. Um, and you know I. I don't know what it's going to look like, but it, you know, this whole experience has made me really come to a newfound appreciation uh, for, for uh, America and the yeah. values that we represent. So you won't hear any disagreement here. We That's say it all awesome the time. That's an awesome place to leave it. Yeah. Be best country in the world. Mm -hmm. And we, we do agree with you that uh, it should be held as an example for the rest of the world. Uh, not mm -hmm. always a, a perfect example, but an example of how a free society can function nonetheless despite all the contentious yeah. you know times we are in right now so mm -hmm. yeah yep emily thank you so much for coming on the show please tell our listeners where they can find you on social uh facebook instagram maybe parlor uh where, and where <laughs> they can find the book oh wait oh yeah okay so um <laughs> I, you know i'm just a parlor lurker so i don't post any interesting content on that so <laughs> no need to follow me there um, but Instagram, Twitter, my handle is Emily C. Conrad. And then I have a Facebook uh, group for my book. It's just the Faithless book. Um, and my book can be purchased anywhere where books are sold. So Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Bookshop. Thank you so much for joining us, Emily. It was really Thank great to talk to you. Thank you for having me. It's, <laughs> been, uh, yeah, it's been great to talk about the Electoral College. Absolutely. This has been another episode of Down the Middle, the fastest growing moderate political podcast in the nation. Go to downthemiddlepod.com to find out more info and contact us. If you send us questions, we'll answer them on air. Follow us on social media at Down the Middle Podcast on Instagram, at Down the Middle PC on Twitter, and at Down the Middle Pod on Facebook. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you are listening. Five stars, people. Five stars. All right. Good night for now.